and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jiggins! Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch.com and Dispatch Media and Dispatch Coconut Soup and Dispatch Coconut Fricassee. Um, sorry, that's the, um, sometimes when I do this, all this Dispatch, Dispatch, Dispatch stuff, first of all, the word starts sounding funny. And second of all, it reminds me of um, the Yosemite Sam episode where he's stuck on a deserted app island and all he has to eat are coconuts and he keeps making all sorts of different wonderful dishes out of coconut so i don't know why that went into my head but that's where we are uh today's episode is sponsored by our friends at the bradley foundation we the people speaker series and uh by express vpn more about them in a little bit so uh here we are um a bunch of people had asked me to do like what uh, some friends of mine had done. Ramesh, uh, Kevin Williamson, uh, uh, Peggy Noonan did one today. Uh, Jade Nordlinger, they all did their sort of, um, you know, why I'm still not voting for Trump kind of things. And um, I just feel like I've talked about that so much. Um, I just decided I just, I just didn't want to do it. So I didn't do that today, but I did do some, some punditry about why I think um, Trump's going to lose. And I talked about that for a bit. Um, I don't think we need to belabor it too much here. Uh, Trump benefited in 2016 from a very low turnout among key Democratic constituencies. It doesn't look like key Democratic constituencies are um, going to stay home this time. You already got, like, as of as of this recording, something like 85, 86 million people have already voted. Something like eight or nine million people have already voted in Texas, which is more people than voted in all of 2016 in Texas. Um, and the idea that that early voting um, is breaking even remotely, even for the Republicans, strikes me as just unlikely, particularly given the fact that um, key Republican constituencies tend to turn out at, for presidential elections. Uh, low turnout is usually generated from Democrats staying home. And so the idea that somehow, uh, all of these young people, I mean, you look at the returns and you look at the early voting in places like Austin and Texas and whatnot, it just, it simply seems that a lot of people are, um, highly motivated. Moreover, you know, historically, and I wrote about this a little bit, historically, it's not a, it's not a, deadlock cinch or lead pipe cinch or whatever that phrase is that um, a president's approval rating at the time of the election is determinative of what his share of the vote will be but it often works out that way uh there have been uh, since 48 um george w bush was the only incumbent president who had less than 50% approval and still won. If you're under 50% approval and you're an incumbent president and you're running, you almost always lose. And he was at 48%. And we don't, the other, other, other asterisk and all that is Harry Truman, who we don't know where he was close to the election because there were no available polls, apparently. Um, 
Um, uh, so, but it just as a general rule, it makes sense, right? Is that if you really don't approve of a president after four years, um, it's unlikely you're going to vote for them unless the other candidate um, is so intolerable that uh, you'll hold your nose and do it. And uh, that's what George W. Bush did because he was running against essentially a human toothache in the form of John Kerry. And even then it was very close. Um, and meanwhile, Trump's approval rating is is locked in at basically uh, 44%. And I could see him overperforming his own approval rating by a couple points, particularly if he were running against, I don't know, Bernie Sanders or somebody like that. But with Biden's polling being above 50, it just doesn't feel like it's particularly possible. And, you know, uh, what was it Henry Thoreau said? Uh, some circumstantial evidence is very compelling uh, as when you find a trout in the milk. Um, and the fact that we've got 85 million people already voting and we are on path to like having maybe 25 or 30 million more people vote than did in 2016. It's just very hard to see how all the, the bulk of those people could be shy Trump voters. So I think he loses. I think he deserves to lose. Um, I will be happy that he lost. I can't say I'll have any joy that um, Biden will win. Um, I understand the binary logic that everyone says I must subscribe to in this regard, but uh, that's just the way it is. I mean, I wrote a pretty upbeat G-file the day after the election in 2016 about how, um, you know, surprisingly happy I was that, you know, Hillary lost. And I mean, it's not surprising that that I was happy that Hillary lost, but I was also conversely happy that Trump won. Um, and that's when I stopped saying I was a never Trumper because he only had one president at a time and you got to give him a chance. Uh, anyway, I gave him a chance. There were some successes, but anyway, you guys know where my position is on, on the Donald. Um, about the trout in the milk thing, I was really upset recently um, to discover that that quote isn't nearly as badass as I thought it was. I, I thought it was this, you know, great sort of leave it to your imagination as to why a trout would be in the milk. Uh, sort of like those uh, Chris Van Allsburg, um Adventures of Harry Burdick, Harris Burdick, I think that's the title of them. Those, those children books, uh, which are fantastic if you don't have them and you got, you got kids of, you know, the right age for them. Um, it's this wonderful book of illustrations that just takes essentially one page from these imagined stories that you don't ever find out what the actual story was. It's just this like little random snippet. And, uh, you know, I always remember there was one, that I think it was the, has this kid riding a, uh, really huge sort of ornate, uh, almost like a Pope's chair. Um, and, the caption on the picture just simply was as it's flying through a Gothic cathedral was something like, and the sixth chair appeared in Paris and that's all you got. And you had to let your imagination fill in the rest of the story. Um, and that's sort of how I always took the, um, uh, that trout in the milk thing. It was just sort of like, you know, trouts don't belong in milk. And so therefore, if there's a trout in the milk, it must be circumstantial evidence for something that would lead for trout to be in milk. 
And it turns out that it was a more homespun expression. It, uh, milk vendors, scurrilous scalawags that they used to be, um, would often water down their milk. And if you found a trout in the milk, it was probably a good sign that they watered down the milk. That's what Thoreau apparently meant by that, which was kind of a, a huge disappointment to me. And I know that was a pretty weird tangent, but that's where we are. So, um, uh, again, I think Trump loses. I will admit, I will be very surprised if he wins. I don't think it's impossible, but it's really hard to figure out. If you haven't read it, uh, Charlie Cook, uh, of the Cook Political Report, Charlie Cook's not the, um, uh, the Florida Roundhead, um, uh, National Review Editor Charlie Cook has a piece where he basically says the the windows now are between a slim Biden victory and a landslide Biden victory, and it's really kind of amazing. I mean, I I is an I think Charlie Charlie Cook is one of the best analysts out there, but one of the things that really stuck out to me, um, and you can go we'll put it in the show notes whatever you can read his analysis about why he thinks these states are going to flip and why the Republicans are going to lose close to 10 House seats and um, are probably going to lose the Senate, which I think would be bad, uh, is this thing about how much money has been spent. He says that, um, as reported by Advertising Analytics on Wednesday, the Biden campaign has bought $626 million in TV time. That's $268 million more than Trump's $358 million. All told, advertising analytics reported that political campaigns and causes dropped $8.12 billion in TV ads so far this cycle. Um, and more than half of that was for Democrats, and then it gets into the weeds. But uh, it's just, that's just some gobsmacking numbers. And it does call, it does bring to mind the fact that you know, we used to hear a lot about the corrosive and evil effects of money in politics. And I don't think I've heard that from anybody about any of the candidates at all. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing how no one seems to really care uh, about this when you're determined for your side to win. And that's fine by me. I've, I've, also, I've often thought that the money and politics stuff was um, a bit of a canard. And in fact, one of the things that Donald Trump proved is that you didn't need a lot of money in politics if you had a campaign strategy that got you a lot of free media and, and all of that. Uh, but it is just sort of amazing how for most of my career, you know, there's been this endless bleeding about the corrosive effect of money in politics. And we've spent more than ever before on these elections and just no one cares. Anyway, um, and since I brought that up, I should talk about Mitch McConnell for a second. Um, I wrote up my uh, Wednesday for dispatch members only uh, Wednesday G-File on Mitch McConnell, and it pissed off some people. Uh, you know, we have this eclectic mix of readers, and some readers are, uh, you know, let's just say full-throated Democrats and liberals who are interested in what, you know, what, our, what we're trying to make our brand, which is intellectually honest conservative journalism. Um, that doesn't really hide the fact that we're mostly from the center right and, but that we're not trying to do partisan water carrying or anything like that. And I appreciate all of those readers. 
but sometimes when we actually follow through, or what I should just say, when I actually follow through on that and say, and, and do something shocking, which is to actually be a conservative who says conservative things, sometimes it, it, it disappoints people or takes them aback. And look, I have... I think there are plenty of criticisms of Mitch McConnell, but one of the things I've always admired about Mitch McConnell, which is what I wrote about, is that politically speaking, he is a grown up. I mean, and yeah, look, people started bombarding me with things he has said in the past that, you know, were ill-advised or that I may not agree with. But, uh, you know, to me, they were all within the 40 yard lines of, you know, of hardball American politics. You know, I can certainly point to far worse things that Harry Reid has said and done when he was the majority leader. You know, he flat out lied about, uh, and later admitted he lied about Mitt Romney not paying taxes. But I'm not trying to do a whataboutism thing here. And my point isn't to sort of say that, you know, that Mitch McConnell is some sort of, you know, represents exactly what I would love for the Republican Party to represent or anything like that. But, but he's a grown-up. Uh, you know, in previous cycles, when a bunch of uh, loudmouths were insistent that, um, you know, these sort of uh, the, the, the fever swampy candidates that beat, you know, that primaried um, more moderate Republican incumbents, you know, there was that the woman who was like, I'm not a witch from Delaware and there were a couple others, you know, Mitch McConnell was against that. You know, in part because it's his job to protect incumbents, because that's part of what a majority leader does. I always find it hilarious and bizarre the way so many of the sort of talk radio right get really, really, really mad at the Senate Republican, you know, committees or whatever, whatever they're called, uh, for having a policy of supporting incumbents when that's what a party is supposed to do, which sort of gets to my point is that you know, Mitch McConnell actually understands what the role of a party is supposed to be. Um, he understands it's better to have a liberal Republican in uh, a Senate seat in Delaware than to lose to a Democrat in Delaware. You know, I keep I think I've made this point a bunch of times on the podcast, but all the people who, who moan about over the last 20 years about rhinos. Look, I get it as a philosophical matter. There are lots of squishy Republicans that really bothered me. but. If being a squishy Republican is what can get you elected in Massachusetts or basically anywhere in New England, which is, with the exception of Susan Collins, is basically a Republican desert now um, because of this attitude, um, better to have a rhino who can caucus with Republicans and make them the majority um, than have, uh, you know, than put up someone who's either just a really crappy candidate um, and or or someone who is way too conservative and so therefore can't win in a a you know with a more moderate more liberal electorate uh you know the 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 first thing that any republican who's elected to the senate owes the party is to caucus with them so that you can get the majority and all that then everything after that can be a negotiation the people i've had much more contempt for over the years have been the people from incredibly safe Senate seats who are so terrified of being primaried uh, that they they basically do nothing. Uh, 
they just sit there and they collect dust and a paycheck and they like to be senators, but they're incredibly risk averse. There's no policy entrepreneurship. There's no, um, you know, swing for the fences effort from these, these Republicans who, you know, because they come from a state that set, that, that goes for Republicans, you know, by 10 points, they would have the political capital to actually do interesting things. And for the last 20 years, most of them haven't. There have been some exceptions. I mean, one of the good ones is, is Mike Lee. I don't like a lot of the things he's been saying lately. I, I'm, I'm not quite clear where his head is at, but I still admire Mike Lee. But anyway, the reason I got onto McConnell, other than the fact that I wrote this thing, you know, in, in, in I think it was 1998, during the debates about campaign finance reform, he gave a speech, uh, which I think was spot on about how uh, these campaign finance reforms under McCain-Feingold were um, not going to take money out of politics. They were going to take um, the parties out of politics. And I know that I'm a broken record about the weak party stuff, but McConnell was entirely right. I, if, if, if we're going to have campaign finance reform, and I understand that, you know, I mean, I'm generally one of these people who thinks that I'm, I'm with Citizens United. I think People should have, um, they have the right to be involved in politics and spend their resources as they like. I think sunshine laws are perfectly a legitimate thing to argue about. I know, I mean, I, I'm not terrified by dark money and all that kind of stuff, but I think reasonable people could have um, a reasonable debate about where you could put in some reasonable regulations about all that stuff. But a part of any sort of actual good policy would be to make it easier to give more money to the actual parties rather than to these outside groups and institutions that do party work without any party accountability. That's one of the reasons why the parties have become so weak is that the parties no longer have the purse strings and the power to actually pick the candidates they want to represent their party who will be good for the brand and good at governing long term. And McConnell called that in 1998. He was exactly right. Um, you know, in the in the 1990s, basically Republicans against their political interest were against campaign finance reform, and Democrats against their their interest were for it. It was a very weird thing. People still think that the most money in politics goes to Republicans. It just doesn't. If you look at the contributions from the trial lawyers and the big unions and all that, particularly government unions, teachers unions. Democrats benefit far more than Republicans do, even if you count, you know, the nefarious Koch brothers and all of that kind of thing. Um, so anyway, I wrote this piece defending Mitch McConnell as as a grown up and he was a grown up in the Trump era. Again, would I have liked it if he said some things differently or criticized Trump more on this issue or that issue? Absolutely. But, you know, what he didn't do was go full Matt Gates. You should never go full Matt Gates. He didn't become a MAGA head. Uh, when Trump leaned on him uh, brutally, and when, you know, Steve Bannon and his, you know, uh, League of Misfits tried to primary, primary virtually every Republican incumbent except for Ted Cruz because McConnell refused to uh, push for removing the legislative filibuster, uh, that was, first of all, that was standing up to Trump. He just didn't make it into a huge thing. Uh, but it was the responsible thing to do. It was the grown up thing to do. 
Um, and instead, what he did was he focused on the things that he could get done that he thought were important. And that's why I think starting with the not giving Merrick Garland a hearing, he deserves you know, the lion's share of credit for the signature accomplishments, uh, uh, the signature accomplishment of the Trump presidency, which are all these judicial appointments. I completely understand why liberals don't like it. I completely understand why they were outraged by um, the Garland, you know, gambit and all of that. It was hardball politics. And, uh, you know, and my hunch is, is that the payback will be something that we really won't like. But McConnell was doing it in part because Harry Reid started it. Um, or you could say they started it with, I don't know, Abe Fortas or Robert Bork. We don't need to do that story again. And um, um, and one of the things I like about, you know, Mitch McConnell is that he's an institutionalist. He's one of the only senators I'm aware of who never wanted to be president. He wanted to be majority leader. He wanted to stay in the Senate. And I mean, I think some of it has to do with self-awareness because you know, the, the, the demand to have a tortoise in the Oval Office is not high, but uh, nonetheless, he, you know, he wanted to work the system he under, of the Senate. He wanted to understand, he, he loves that institution. And again, opened all sorts of criticisms from the right or the left. But one of the things that is so lacking in our politics today, um, and I don't just mean in terms of like elected office, but across the board throughout our culture, is the refusal, refusal of people to bend themselves to an institution and to stay in their lanes. And that's what Mitch McConnell did. And he did it, you know, masterfully. And he got all, you know, got three Supreme Court justices on the court. And uh, I'm glad they're on the court. Totally understand why liberals are against it. Uh, totally understand why they don't like his hardball tactics. But that doesn't change you know, that doesn't mean my analysis is wrong just because you don't want to hear it. And I do think, you know, just touching on the Supreme Court really briefly, um, the, you know, the court packing stuff I don't think is going to happen. I think it would blow up Biden's presidency. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Democrats are kind of losing their minds when you hear these people talking about impeaching Amy Coney Barrett for just being Amy Coney Barrett, which is lunacy. But it does touch on this this sort of flop sweat panic that you see certain liberal elites get into when an important institution in American life, not just an important institution of the right, but of American life writ large, gets controlled by conservatives. And they, 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 they think it's a trout in the milk. They think it is an unacceptable violation of the Gleichschaltung, right? The, an unacceptable deviation from the idea that all of the commanding heights of the culture should be um, coordinated and run by uh, like-minded people. And, you know, this is the same, you know, outlook of sort of woke orthodoxy is why, you know, conservatives can't, you know, uh, you know, can't stay at the New York Times, really. I mean, uh, you know, I know David Brooks and, 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 and Ross are there, but you know, they have, <laughs> they have to put up with a lot. And the, uh, the, you know, just the sort of outrage that, uh, conservatives would have, a, have a voice or a place of influence in institutions that sort of the progressive meritocracy think by rights and by merit should only belong to them kind of drives them a little insane. And I think it's kind of weird. 
and you know, and frankly, you know, this I think the Supreme Court, regardless of the fact that I'm a conservative, you know, I mean, I, I understand that there are many meanings to the word conservative. I think the Supreme Court should be conservative with a small c. It should be conservative in the sense that we should not have legislation coming from the Supreme Court. We should not have society changing things coming from the Supreme Court, except when it's absolutely necessary, except when the issue is so ripe that there is no alternative and a clear violation of a constitutional principle is there, and then it's fine for the Supreme Court to act. But I thought it was a really fascinating sort of slip of the tongue from Nancy Pelosi the other week or the other day, I know time is a flat circle, where she said that one of the reasons why we need to think about expanding the court is because um, the population is so much bigger, which is just, you know, lunacy. Um, if you think it's because, you know, and I, Charlie Cook was making this point on the other Charlie Cook, the Florida roundhead, um, was making this point on the editors. If, if, if you think the increase in population is a reason to expand the court, then basically what you're saying is that the Supreme Court is a legislature and should grow with it. And the weird thing about this, again, as Charlie pointed out, but I thought about this too, because expanding the House of Representatives is sort of an obsession of mine. Um, if you really thought that a rising population required government to uh, respond in kind, you would expand the House of Representatives, which Nancy Pelosi runs. It's, that's her branch. But, you know, she's using the nearest weapon to hand argument to talk about blowing up the Supreme Court. And if she actually meant what she was saying in terms of the internal logic of her position, she would want the House to have two or three thousand members, which is what I want. And, you know, let us not forget that the real First Amendment, um, which got lost in history, was about expanding the size of Congress uh, to adjust for population. But we can talk about that another time. Um, so, uh, where to go from here? Um, oh, okay. So a bunch of people really didn't like last week's ruminant. Uh, some just didn't like the punditry. Uh, a bunch are still just very angry that I will not get on board with the, um, Hunter Biden story being the scandal of the century. And I still don't see it. I mean, I really don't. I mean, look, I totally think Hunter, here are the things I believe Hunter Biden lied. Hunter Biden is corrupt. Hunter Biden uh, was uh, um, trading on his name to make money inappropriately. Um, and I, I am unaware as of yet of him actually committing any crimes. I don't know what crimes have been alleged. I mean, other than, you know, drug use and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm perfectly happy to stipulate all of that stuff where, where I kind of lose um, the, the, the argument is how it connects to his dad. And the funny thing is, is that whenever I listen to the reports about this on Fox or the, the politicians explaining this, like Ron Johnson and all that, they get really detailed about what Hunter did wrong. And then they switch the issue to the fact that Joe Biden clearly lied when he said he never talked to Hunter um, about his business dealings. And I'm persuaded of that too. I think Joe Biden lied. I think Joe Biden um, 
obviously has talked to his kid about this stuff. I think it was obvious that he tried to keep his kid at arm's length. Um, I think it's obvious that he, he loves his troubled kid and was, um, uh, conflicted about how to deal with all this stuff, but the business deals that were proposed never happened. And even if they had happened, um, as far as I am aware, uh, it, they would not have been illegal and Joe Biden wasn't in office. So I, again, I, I, I guess it's all unseemly and all these kinds of things, but it's just this very weird thing. I've gotten so much hate mail from people because of my appearance on Fox news the other night on special report where I said the whole thing is overblown and I still believe it's overblown and it has become sort of this totem, this, this, um, you know, this shorthand thing that you must believe in the maximalist theory of whatever the Hunter Biden theory is, or you are part of the swamp or whatever. And, um, I just still, I haven't seen it. And, you know, the idea that this, uh, Bob Alinsky guy is, um, gospel and his testimony has to be taken at face value. Um, uh, I'm fine with like taking it at face value to a certain extent, because again, I don't think he has actually demonstrated other, anything criminal. Um, what he's demonstrated, if he's to believe it entirely, which I don't necessarily do, um, uh, what he's demonstrated is that Joe Biden lied about not talking to his kid about, um, his kid's business dealings. That's not a crime. And, you know, and if you, not to get into whataboutism, but if, 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 if a presidential candidate enrages you by lying about what his family members are doing in business, um, I would love to check the record to see how much of Trump's lies about his family business and, and what his kids have been up to and the money he's making abroad and all these kinds of things while he's president of the United States. If that ha doesn't really bother you, that kind of tells me that this is not a, this has nothing to do with your passion about uh, being against corruption. It has to do with the fact that you really want this to be the silver bullet that takes out Joe Biden. And you're frustrated that it's not. Um, I'm in, again, I'm all in favor of investigating it further. Uh, that's fine. And I think the media has made a huge mistake in how they've treated this. And certainly Facebook and Twitter have. Um, I do think it's kind of fascinating that this Bobolinsky guy, um, you know, if you if you follow just right wing media sources, he is this heroic veteran, and I'm not trying to disparage his service or anything like that. But you never hear anybody mention how you basically ran, you know, he sold this gigosity company to Adult Friend Finder, and then became you know like an executive and essentially a in a sort of porny kind of company. Um, nor do you have people sort of thinking through what they're saying, you know, when they say that. Hunter is the single most corrupt um, person in American life since I don't know who. Um, and at the same time that this Bobolinsky guy is this straight arrow, well, you know, who do people, if people are that corrupt, I mean, like, who does someone like Hunter Biden go to to put together shady deals with? And if you read closely the reporting, it seems like the the reason why Bobolinsky was mad at Hunter Biden is that the shady deal they were trying to put together that allegedly had all to do with, you know, leveraging Joe Biden's influence, 
what influence he would have with the Trump administration is beyond me, didn't go through. And that's why he's angry and disgruntled. And I just, again, it's weird how any sort of quote unquote whistleblower who says things about Trump is, uh, can be dismissed as disgruntled, but, um, Bobulinski's, uh, we have to assume that Bobulinski is fully gruntled and, and, and above board, you know, I mean, I don't believe anything Michael Cohen says about Donald Trump if he doesn't provide corroborating evidence because he's a scumbag. I'm not saying Bobulinski's a scumbag, but you know, his resume doesn't tell me I have to take everything he says at face value either. And so far, all of the evidence that he's provided doesn't prove some grand crime. Um, so anyway, I think it's, again, more reporting is required, but I'm sorry I'm not getting on the bandwagon on all this. And, you know, I would tell you more about what Bobulinski did or didn't do um, when he was running the, that Jugosity thing or the, the adult friend finder, you know, social media promotion thing that he was running. Um, but I haven't Googled around uh, too much on it, um, even though I do have ExpressVPN. Every day I read another story about how our personal privacy is being invaded. It's not just social media sites watching your every move. It's your smart speaker, your smart TV, everything. Look, your data is your property. If companies that pay next to nothing in taxes are going to track what you do online and sell off your information, you should be compensated for it. And since you're not, then do the next best thing. Protect yourself with the same service that I often trust and use to keep my information safe, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN encrypts your internet data and hides your IP address so websites, hackers, and even your internet service provider can't track you. It's simple to download the ExpressVPN app onto any of your devices, and it only takes one click to turn on. That's it. I have ExpressVPN. I, it's on most of the day, and particularly on my iPad. Um, and whenever I do like banking and all that kind of stuff, it just runs in the background, um, and it doesn't slow down the connection. Wired, CNET, and The Verge rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN on the market, and it is. It's less than $7 a month, and if you don't like it for any reason, there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So protect your online privacy today with ExpressVPN, and because you're listening to The Remnant, you can get three months of ExpressVPN protection for free when you visit expressvpn.com remnant. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash remnant for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash remnant to learn more. And thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. All right, enough of all that stuff. Um, I had, you know, we had this, I was on Glop this week, which is the Glop Culture podcast that I do for Ricochet with uh, John Pedores and Rob Long. And we talked for a bit about the Amazon show, The Boys. And um, I hadn't really planned on talking about this there or here, but as we were just sort of knocking it around, it came to mind. And there's this thing I think is kind of interesting. Um, the, the, you know, the, for those of you who haven't seen it, the basic premise of, of The Boys is that, um, what if superheroes were real? And it's a very dark show. It's violent. There's a lot of gratuitous sex and violence, um, which is obviously one of the reasons I find it so compelling, sort of like my dinner with Andre. 
And, um, um, you know, it's, it's a cynical look because basically what they've, you know, these superheroes that they have, um, they basically, up until the plot develops, you know, down the road, I don't want to give any spoilers, uh, the superheroes have to be um, movie stars too. And so there's this sort of meta thing where the, it's basically like the, the seven are basically like the Avengers and they star in their own movies in these fi fictional scenarios, even though they have real superpowers. And, um, and one of the reasons why they have to do this, at least in the beginning is because there are no supervillains and there's not that much use for actual superpowers in 21st century America, um, unless you're using them to be a, you know, be a star, basically be, you know, a, a, the equivalent of a actor or a rock star or something like that, which I thought, you know, which never really occurred to me until we were talking about it. And I think it's kind of an interesting point. If, you know, the, the lead guy in the movie Homelander, the lead superhero, who's a villain in real, you know, well, he, he's a bad guy. Um, he basically is like Superman not quite as strong as Superman in the comics and all that kind of stuff, but, um, he can fly, he's got laser vision, um, super strong, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, um, and he's actually, he's closer to, uh, a lot of you probably don't remember this, but there was a Saturday Night Live skit 40 years ago, um, asking what if, Superman had been born in Germany and the whole shtick was Herr Ubermensch. Um, and so he's a little bit more of an Ubermensch in the sense of not so much the Nietzschean sense, but in the sort of, he's a, he's a blood and soil nationalist and they take their shots at Trump and all that kind of thing. But anyway, if you had those kinds of powers in, or, you know, Spider-Man's powers or, you know, any of that, or the flash, um, uh, in say the year 1500, you could become basically a global warlord. Um, the technology at that time was such that, um, you could probably take out whole armies. You basically be like, you know, the dragons in game of Thrones kind of thing where you just have this asymmetric power over society as it existed. Now, I mean, take Superman out of it because one of the reasons why I hate Superman as a super, as a comic book character is because he's always more powerful than everything and anything, and um, he's too indestructible. But for most superheroes, you know, if they were alive today, you know, I mean, what would they do with their powers? They, you know, I mean, you wouldn't be, you couldn't conquer the world, to be sure. Um, you know, combined armies and jet craft and all these kind of things eventually could take out Spider-Man. Um, you know, they could eventually take out the Flash. Uh, and so, you know, if you had like the power of invisibility, you could get rich by being a spy. Um, uh, if you were, if you were a telepath, you could get lots of, you could have all sorts of power. That's for sure. Like Professor X from the X-Men is probably, um, the best suited super comic book character for global domination um if they existed in the real world and so anyway the point i'm trying to make here and i'm not trying to geek out on comics is how 
it's sort of it just it's weirdly fascinating to me how um our conceptions of what are in, you know incredible powers or incredible strength are really hinged to a pre-modern society um and it kind of reminds me you know there's that Arthur C Clarke line where he says um any sufficiently advanced form of science is indistinguishable from magic um the stuff that we have the power to do today in terms of technology would make you um a superhero in the year 1500 or the year 1000 um the things you could do with just a gun right really if you had enough ammo the things you could do with a car um all these things you know the ability to fly in a plane uh would be just huge and but we don't think about any of that kind of stuff in those ways i mean we basically through the miracle of innovation and markets have superpowers now uh not only do we live you know two two and a half times longer than most human beings ever made it um in previous societies uh we live with material comforts and, and technologies that would be indistinguishable from magic for most of humanity for most of its time on the planet and i don't really know where i'm going with that except that i think it's really kind of interesting um you know i used to do this mental exercise where you ask yourself given what you know how to do right now like just in terms of what you you know how handy you are all these kinds of things at what stage of history could you go back to before you were completely useless? Um, you know, I know that, I know that TVs work. I know that computers work. I know that cars work. I know, um, that there's penicillin and I guess I know that it's somehow related to moldy bread in some way. But, you know, if I went back 250 years, I, I don't know how useful my knowledge would be even if I could convene the greatest scientists in the world, I could say, yeah, you know, we have these things called jets and we have this stuff called antibiotics and we have this, um, you know, thing called the internet, but beyond telling you that it's something to do with electricity and, and ones and zeros and stuff, I have no idea how to help you to get there. You know, if I went back a thousand years, I could probably help people put together a catapult or they've had catapults a thousand years ago, 10,000 years, I could help with the catapult. I would be really helpful with, um, uh, in prehistoric times, you know, delivering the wheel. That would be super useful. But for the most part, you know, the way I kind of think about it, and it's a very Hayekian kind of point, is that we, um, long before we had the concept of cloud computing, Western civilization and our accumulated knowledge were essentially a cloud computer. And we downloaded little bits of information or software into our brains to be able to perform specific tasks. Um, the division of labor was such that you could do this at scale to the point where you could build cities and all of these kinds of things. And, um, but we, you know, we don't actually know very much about how most of the stuff that we take for granted actually works. It's sort of an eye pencil point, right? Um, and 
I think it's helpful for people to think in those terms because when you start thinking in those terms, you stop being the sort of the the arrogant progressive or the arrogant reformer that Chesterton talks about when you know he, t- he talks about Chesterton's fence, you know, where you don't have any conception about why things are the way they are, and you think that you're just simply smart enough to um, reinvent the world based out of your own intellect, that ideas can spring forth from your forehead like lightning bolts from the brow of Zeus, and you don't need to pay attention to the past or understand how we got here. You don't need to have historical memory. You don't need to have gratitude for what came before you. Um, You don't have to like, you know, it's like the people who think modern monetary theory is a thing. Um, They have no conception, you know, like Hayek makes this point, I think it's in the Constitution of Liberty, but I'm not sure that there is more embedded knowledge in paper money than there is in any library. Um, I was talking to my wife about this, and I know I've used this example a bunch of times before, but my wife and I were watching this documentary about this um, famous, uh, I think her name is Cecilia Chang. She just died. She brought uh, high-end Chinese cuisine to the United States um, after she escaped from uh, uh, China. And, and when you listen to, uh, and we also watched this, this, this series, you know, this, um, can't remember what a chef's table on Netflix. Um, and whenever you watch these, these great chefs, even the ones who do kind of food that I don't really approve of, of incredibly clever, um, you know, deconstructed this and reimagined that, uh, most of them, actually talk about how important it is to master the traditional parts of your cuisine and your specialty before you do any of that stuff. I mean, my understanding is that Jackson Pollock, not, not a chef, obviously, um, was actually a great Western painter before he started doing all of that, uh, you know, uh, splatter paint stuff. And, but you listen to these chefs and, you know, they have this appreciation for how much embedded knowledge there is in cuisine. The greatest chef in the world is, you know, he's standing on the shoulders of generations of giants. It's this tiny little tip of the historical iceberg. They don't know why, you know, this leaf was cultivated to become a salad and this other leaf wasn't. Um, you know, Matt Ridley has this fantastic chart in his latest book about how innovation works, showing what common, uh, you know, common produce looked like in the wild before it was domesticated and cultivated to be our food. And it's bananas. It all looks like, you know, stuff from an alien planet. Um, and so my point is that there's incredible, you know, generations, millennia of trial and error that is built into this, you know, idea that you need to cook food built into the idea that these spices work and that these don't, that these mushrooms are poisonous and these aren't people have died for generations, figuring out how to make food good. And even the most homespun, you know, family recipe stuff is really, you know, it's sort of like, you know how the light you're looking at from uh, distant stars is like 20 million, 30 million, 50 million years old. It's that, it took whatever the number of time, whatever amount of time it took here in light years, right? The light that reaches your eye is from you know, like 10 million years ago, and you're just seeing it now. The, the food, you know, the meatloaf that you see on your plate, 
um, has is is like a thousand or ten thousand years old, and there's all of this accumulated wisdom in it that you just sort of take for granted that you've downloaded the latest version of Meatloaf 5.0 from the cloud and you start your inventiveness from there. And um, and I think it's sort of a fascinating way to think about how um, what we know and what we work with in the day to day basis. Um, is just crammed full of of knowledge and information um, that we're not even even aware of, and we're just playing with like this little last one percent, like the light from a star that's visible to our eye right now. And you know, one of the things that makes me a conservative is wanting to have an appreciation for that stuff. Um, and and I think you know, and one of the things that you know, makes me opposed to sort of the conservative mindset is to have a sort of a, 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 to the progressive mindset, I'm not sure what I said there, um, is this fierce urgency of now attitude that the past has nothing to teach us, that our traditions are just, um, vestigial crap lying around that people don't understand and that don't have anything important to, uh, inform us about or to shape good character or to shape, um, uh, you know, our decisions. And I think that's sort of, that's the, you know, that gets to Tom Sowell's constrained versus unconstrained vision thing. Um, if you're completely oriented to thinking about the perfect world in front of you and not oriented towards the fallen world that we've slowly improved upon to get us where we are, your politics are just going to be very different. Um, and uh, anyway, so that's that. Moving on. Um, uh, oh, another thing I wrote about this week, which is a minor, it's a growing obsession of mine, and I want to do a, um, I, I want to start doing more remnants on urban politics. Um, is that the GOP seems to me to be um, suicidally contemptuous of cities and of urban politics in general. And I, look, I grew up in New York City. I get it. I understand what it feels like to be completely on the outs. Um, and it is a daunting task, the idea of clawing back uh, a foothold in, in, in major cities. But here's the problem. If you don't do it, the Republican party, as we know it is doomed. I mean, I think it might, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily doomed right now, but it's, it's, it's not going to come out of this election. Well, and part of that, as I, as I wrote about is because, um, it is fixated on this at the branding level, right? At the, at the level of, um, the way, uh, you know, various personalities on Fox, um, the way, uh, the sort of, you know, the Ted Nugent, the duck dynasty, um, that whole contingent of, of, of right-wing politics, it works from this implied assumption that real America is, is, is cowboy boots, pickup trucks, um, 
country music, hunting and fishing, driving an SUV through a delicate creek bed, whatever, right? Look, I don't mean to be overly dismissive of, of a lot of those parts of America. I like a lot of those parts of America. And I think that sort of that traditional rural, small town America has a lot to teach the rest of America. But there's one thing to say that that part of America is an important repository of values. That part of America speaks to our conception of who we are as a people. And it's another thing to say um, that all of the major cities are just run by coastal elites um, and or uh, unreachable ethnic cocktails that uh, have nothing to do with real America. And look, again, I'm not trying to paint the real America stuff as racist. Uh, Some of it is. Most of it isn't. Um, But if you're talking about branding, which is that word I generally hate, that sort of, you know, halcyon, let's look back at the um, sort of the, the white America of the West and all of these, all these kinds of things and the sort of all the country music video cliches, uh, it feels alien to large numbers of people and not just large numbers of non-white people. Um, and moreover, you know, we're supposed to be free market people. We're supposed to think, you know, the economy is important. We're supposed to think that, um, innovation and economic dynamism, uh, and that simple economic growth are important things. And the simple fact is, is that major urban centers, metro areas, however you want to define them, that's where the vast bulk of economic activity, of economic innovation, of economic dynamism, that's where the good jobs of the future are going to be. You know, I looked it up, uh, and, you know, this can be a little misleading, but people who are outright agricultural workers, um, I don't mean the people who work for the various sectors that radiate outwards from the agricultural sector and that depend on the agricultural sector, right? You know, food production and all these kinds of things are different. But according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the number of actual agriculture workers in this country is like 900 and something thousand people, which means basically the combined payrolls of Amazon and Kroger are greater than um, the, com- the total number of agriculture workers in this country. I don't despair agriculture workers. Those are not particularly high paying jobs on average. Um, they're also the easiest jobs to replace with not only just forget immigration with automation and all of these kinds of things. And, um, and they're hard backbreaking jobs. Uh, and there's a lot of dignity in those jobs. I'm not trying to disparage those jobs, but if you want to be a 21st century economy, catering to the agriculture sector as if it is central and definitional to your conception of real America and a robust nationalism, that's just bonkers. And it's also just not true. Also, the simple fact is, is like, you're just for the same reason that you're supposed to rob banks because that's where the money is. You're, you, Republicans need to be reaching out to cities because that's where the votes are going to be. If you, if you go by metro areas, right, which includes like the inner suburbs and these mini cities and all these kinds of things, if you go by the high population density parts of this country, that's where most people live. That's why we have these crazy, you know, red, red versus blue maps where most of the country is red. 
Um, and even though the little blue islands outvoted the red parts in a lot of elections, um, there are also a lot of conservatives in, in those parts of the country, you know, um, uh, especially if you define it, you know, broadly. Last time I looked at these kinds of numbers in New York City, something like one out of nine residents of New York City were um, conservatives. Well, okay, that's in in political math, that's not great. But in another sense, that's kind of amazing. That means that there are like a million, depending on, you know, let's say there are 10 million people. That's a million conservatives that are there. Uh, that is something that you can build on, particularly if you have a conception of conservatism that isn't geared towards the, you know, uh, real America shtick. If, you know, the, the, the small business, you know, the more small businessmen in places like New York or LA or Chicago, uh, than there are in, you know, rural Oklahoma or any rural part of this country. There are, these are striving entrepreneurs. They're, um, they tend to, you know, whether they're immigrant or not, they tend to be family run businesses that, um, um, involve all sorts of wonderful bourgeois values and, um, zoning and these kinds of things in these cities are brutal on these people. Rent control is brutal on these people. Now I've talked about this before, but when I, you know, when I was a kid, I always thought it was so weird how all the great European cities, um, and they are great, and people say, you know, oh, I don't like, you know, the, the sort of Ron Swansonism, and I love Ron Swanson, but, you know, of disparaging Europe. I, I have lots of critical things to say about Europe, but I also love great cities, and Europe is full of great, walkable, livable cities. Um, but I always sort of found it fascinating when I was a kid, you know, when I grew up in New York in the 1970s, um, inner city was synonymous with crime and drugs, sometimes unfairly, but that's just the way it was because there was a lot of crime and a lot of drugs in, in inner cities in America, particularly in New York. And, um, but in Europe, inner cities where all the rich people lived. Inner city was where all the tourists went. And, you know, all of those, you know, Banaloo, I think they call them in French, those outer suburbs where they burn cars and the, the French Muslims and North Africans and all that are, you know, no-go zones, or at least allegedly, uh, those are the suburbs. And what we're seeing in, um, I mean, they're not way out there suburbs, but they're suburbs. They're not part of the inner city, the inner ring of these metropolitan areas. And we're seeing that happen in America. As once you get a hold on crime, you know, recent rioting notwithstanding, uh, it turns out that rich people want to live, uh, rich and aspiring people want to live downtown and they move downtown. And then you get this catalytic effect of gentrification and all these things. And that pushes poor people out further and further. And um, there's room in that kind of churn to make the case for all sorts of free market conservative policies about cutting red tape about fixing zoning, about fixing the frickin' stranglehold that these democratic machines have on, um, on most cities. You know, my brother, before he died, you know, he ran for city council, and his stories about how rigged that system was were amazing. Um, people, you know, 
look, I think it's appalling the way Republicans are just owning this idea that stopping people from voting is their only path to power. I think that is, even when the law is on their side, the optics of it, and the law is not always on their side, but when, even when the law is on their side, the optics and rhetoric of, of some of this stuff is just so devastatingly self-harming. Um, and meanwhile, you know, the, the cabals of, of, of teachers unions and other public sector unions in places like New York City and Chicago have this unbelievable stranglehold on the democratic process in part because they have perfected forms of voter suppression. Uh, you know, there, there are academic papers on this about how they, they play games about when the primaries are going to be so that there's the least possible turnout. Um, they're against all of these ideas that they're all for on the national level for presidential elections about making it a holiday and extending voting. They're against them at the local level because the simple fact is, is that teachers unions and groups like that have incredible power. Let's say there are, they only make up, um, 1% of the electorate, you know, those kinds of groups, those kinds of special interest groups. Well, if everybody votes, they are a rounding error in, uh, on, you know, all sorts of questions about school boards, all sorts of questions about bonds, all sorts of questions about taxes. But if only 5% of the people vote, um, then 1% is 20%, which gets you really close to a plurality. And they play these games all the time. And so the idea that Republicans and conservatives should be just giving up this battle space where most people live, where most economic growth comes from, where most innovation comes from, and where there are persuadable people um, who may not think of themselves as conservatives or Republicans, but are for, for damn sure in favor of better police protection damn sure in favor of um, less red tape and less, you know, hectoring from various bureaucrats and inspectors who are um, in favor of getting their kids into better schools, even if the teachers unions don't want it. Um, you know, the whole, the vast majority of this keeping the schools closed thing is a teacher union power play. Um, and if you don't have boots on the ground having these fights in cities to work this stuff out, then you are destined to keep losing at the national level as well. And you're, you're, you're making the country worse off for it. So anyway, I mean, I, I can rant about that more, but I shouldn't do that. Um, anyhow, uh, what was I going to talk about next? Um, oh, I kind of already talked about this already, but, um, you know, and I wrote a whole book basically on this theme, but my column today was basically picking up on Ronald Bailey and, and Marion Tupi's um, great book about 10 trends every smart person should know. Uh, some people in the comments at the dispatch made a perfectly fine point about how, you know, focusing on this material stuff is, 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 you know, all fine and interesting, but we do have all sorts of real spiritual and social problems that can't be fixed by material issues alone. And I agree entirely with that. I write a lot about that stuff, but borrowing from, from Ron and Marion, the, that 
doesn't mean you can't in one column a year <laughs> point out that a lot of the doomsaying stuff that people are throwing around out there isn't the whole story. You know, my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, wrote a book called The Good News is the Bad News is Wrong. I think there is, it, it's sort of like this thing about cities. If you let one side's narrative be the only narrative on a whole range of subjects, um, um, people will think that's the only narrative, that those are the only facts that you need to know. And there are real problems in the environment. There are, you know, I, I, I worry about the state of the oceans. I worry about extinction law, you know, a species loss. Um, I worry less than, you know, my betters tell me I should about climate change, but I think it's a real thing. And it's something that, you know, warrants, um, action more than inaction. Um, in the sense that I think it should be really studied. I'm in favor of geoengineering kind of stuff and those kind of solutions. I'm also in, in favor of massive investment in safe next generation nuclear power. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but is it really so terrible to point out that our air is cleaner, that violence is down, that people are richer than any time in human history, including our poor people? Um, is it really so terrible to point out amidst all of this BLM craziness that actually racial relations in America are better than, you know, at any point in the last 50 or 250 years? Uh, that stuff, I think, deserves an airing. And I got to say, you know, what else deserves an airing? Andrew McCarthy. Uh, my friend Andrew McCarthy is on the latest episode of the Bradley series, We the People. As many of you know, I say it all the time, Andy McCarthy is one of my favorite people, a former colleague of mine at, at National Review. Um, don't always agree with him, but I always respect him and I always like him. And uh, I, he's, he's a brilliant guy who, particularly on the stuff that that he has firsthand experience with. He is just incredibly useful to listen to, um, to gut check um, what your um, priors are. You know, if, if 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 you really disagree with Andy, it always you even if you even if he doesn't persuade you, it is always worth hearing his argument. Um, plus, I just think the guy is a, is a great guy, and um, and that's why I'm particularly happy to talk about the latest episode of the We the People um, Bradley Speaker Series. Uh, Americans are navigating through several unanticipated crises this year. We the People, a Bradley Speaker Series, offers insights and ideas on the current challenges we face from some of the remarkable organizations the Bradley Foundation supports. Visit bradleyfdn.org liberty to watch their most recent episode, which features Andy McCarthy, speaking on the breakdown and respect for the rule of law and related social and judicial issues. McCarthy is a best-selling author, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, and a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. In this episode, he addresses the characterization of Antifa, the dangers of court packing, and the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Andy also provides perspective on the latest developments in the Russia investigation. So that's Bradley. B-R-A-D-L-E-Y-F-D-N dot org slash liberty. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, F-D-N dot org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes debut weekly, so you can go back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. We thank the Bradley Speaker Series for sponsoring today's episode of 
a remnant. Okay, so I've kind of, uh, I've gone long. I apologize to the Bradley Foundation for waiting so long to get to that ad. Um, and um, sorry, now I'm just drinking coffee. Um, and so here we go, right? We got less than 100 hours, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, until the election. Or I should say till the end of the voting, because the election has been going on for a very long time. And um, um, I got to say, I think that people are losing their minds all over the place. And that's part of what I wrote about in the, in the G file. Um, and I think that um, if Trump loses, that you're going to be hearing from a lot of people about how, you know, people like me are the reason why Trump lost. Uh, I mean, I hear it every single day that, you know, uh, not the reason why he lost, but the reason why he's losing and the reason, you know, all these kinds of things. And that um, I wish some of these people could make up their minds between saying, um, even though I don't use the phrase never Trumper about myself, you never Trumpers, um, uh, you know, you don't matter, you're irrelevant, no one listens to you, and you are the cause of the end of civilization and the socialist takeover of America. Um, you know, it can't be both. And it's, a, I think it's partly a sign of the, the sort of desperation of a lot of people who um, played the Trump card, so to speak, poorly over the last four years. You know, this is one of my great peeves is that I think people like me um, actually, if people had had listened to me more, even though Trump got elected, Trump would be in better shape, right? If I said, oh, this guy has got to stop acting so unpresidential, if they listen to me about that kind of stuff, if um, if they've heated my criticisms about, and forget me, if they heated the criticism of people who said um, his rhetoric is bad, his tweeting is bad, he needs to stop doing things like accusing Joe Scarborough of murder. Um, if he basically had listened to most of the editors at National Review, um, Trump would be in much better shape today. But there were a whole bunch of people, um, I'm sure you can think of some of the people I have in mind, who seem to think that um, they had deciphered the secret code of the real America and of how America works and of how America was going to look way off into the future. And they didn't need, and that normal politics were over and they internalized this MAGA bullshit, um, and this smash mouth stuff and the own the libs thing became definitional. Um, and Trump's personality became kind of contagious. And what used to be considered his shortcomings became redefined as his strengths. Uh, and they abandoned questions about character. Um, all of these things, I think a bunch of people, I suspect a bunch of people are recognizing how poorly they handled this. And that their enabling of Trump not only proves that they were wrong about Trump, but they proves that they were wrong about American politics and what was required. Um, and of course, a lot of these people have had a really great run over the last four years of becoming more famous, more, um, being on TV more, uh, you know, getting speeches and books and all these kinds of things. I'm not saying that they're all in it for the money. Some of them definitely are, cause I, I know that they are. Um, but 
it is amazing how if your business model supports uh, your behavior, how quickly you think your behavior is even more justified um, than you once did. And that applies to a lot of people who originally got into this stuff um, out of expediency and partisan zeal and over the last four years have convinced themselves that their own talking points are true. And I feel like there's a big flop sweat panic out there that um, people will notice that they kind of blew it. And that's why I think I'm in for, and people like me are in for a lot of shouting about how we're the real November criminals, about how we were the ones who undermined him. There was this poll the other week about how I think it was poorly phrased and, and poorly spun, but you know, this poll that basically says that Trump's shortfall is attributable to quote unquote never Trumpers, which is like four, they define it as like 4% of the electorate. I think that's kind of garbage. Um, but you know, it doesn't need to be true to become a major talking point. And I think it'll become a major talking point. Um, as you know, as the chaos of a post Trump, um, presidency kind of sinks into people and a whole bunch of people are kind of like Colonel Nicholson and bridge over river Kwai saying, my God, what have I done? Um, and so I expect that to get kind of ugly. Um, and it'll probably be ugly too, if Trump wins, which again, I think is possible. I just think it's really, really unlikely. I certainly wouldn't bet that way unless you gave me really incredible odds. But if he wins, everything gets, I think everything gets even much uglier because, you know, this is my point about Donald Trump for years now. And I know I, I belabor this point. He is, he's a black swan. He's an outlier. He is, um, he is the monkey throwing darts at the stock page who has a fantastic portfolio. Um, I've written about this before, but, uh, uh, a guy I know, hugely successful guy, honorable dude, who has in fact kind of gone Trumpy of late, which kind of breaks my heart, but um, hugely successful business guy. He told me early on um, this great line. He said, you know, look, Jonah, you have to understand that integrity lowers the price of capital. And what he meant by this, and I talked about this in the before about social capital stuff, but um, if you're, imagine you're a bank, right? and you and some guy and two people ask you for a loan and person a is someone that you've lent money to a hundred times in the past. And he's always paid back on time. Um, and the few times, or when he's been late, he's called you up proactively to say why he's going to be late. And he paid you what he could. And he did everything he could to promise to, um, be responsible. Um, and he was a hardworking thrifty guy who you never regretted uh, dealing with, because he was always honest and straightforward with you. If he comes to you for another loan, you're going to think he's a safe risk and you're not going to charge him a lot. If another person comes to you who is basically, let's just say Hunter Biden, and, um, you think he's shifty, he's untrustworthy, but for some reason or another, you're supposed to give him a loan or whatever, you're going to charge him more because he's just a greater risk. And, um, Normally, it's one of the, this is one of the points that Adam Smith makes about how capitalism rightly understood reinforces and rewards bourgeois behavior. 
that honest dealings and thriftiness are rewarded in the marketplace because you want to deal with honorable people who are good at their word that don't need, you know, 500 page contracts with all sorts of escape clauses to work out a deal. You shake their hand, their word is as good as oak, and that's it. That's what good integrity brings you, and that's what capitalism is supposed to foster. And, you know, contrary to a lot of people who think that everybody who's rich is somehow, you know, corrupt and dishonest, in my experience, most of the rich people, and I, I understand there's some selection bias here, but most of the rich people I've ever known are pretty honorable people, um, precisely for these reasons. They care about their reputations. They care about, um, you know, their reputation, not just in a public sense, but among their peers. And they see integrity as an important part of their reputation. Donald Trump defies all of that. Donald Trump, there are literally thousands of stories. I know people who have these stories. Jim Garrity tells stories about, you know, in his family, his dad was a contractor and Trump ripped him off. There are all sorts of these kinds of stories out there. Um, I know, you know, I, I know one story about pollsters who did work for him and, and then asked, you know, said, okay, now it's time to get paid. And he said, try and collect. He's legendary for, you know, finagling out of bills, of suing people, of threatening to sue people, to get out of paying what he owes. The guy who actually built the Woolman ice skating rink got totally screwed and Trump took all the credit for it. And the other guy got left holding the bag. And the thing is, is that for Trump, it worked. It, you know, it's what they call, you know, winner's bias. You know, uh, he's, he's the guy who, um, did basically the wrong thing in almost every turn and came out of it okay. And so it's totally understandable that he would learn the lesson from that, that this is proper behavior. I remember reading, there's this book uh, called The Africans by a guy named David Lamb. He was the New York Times Africa correspondent. And he tells us these stories about how, you know, in certain parts of the world, the, you know, people learn from things and, you know, cause and effect has different, you know, um, uh, can lead to different lessons. And I'm, I'm not arguing for logocentrism or anything like that, but he tells a story about how, like, um, uh, I think it's in the land book. I don't want to mess this up. Anyway, I think it's in there. Maybe it's someplace else. He's got a great story about, um, these pilots who were in these like French MIGs in, I think Zaire and, uh, uh, air traffic controllers said, um, there's too much fog. You can't land. And they took away from that, that they had to um, bail out of their planes and let them crash so they could parachute to the ground rather than like circle the airport until the, the fog clears. Um, but I think it's in there. He also tells a story about how in, um, and I've heard other people talk about this, that in some developing countries, people drive like crazy people. And, you know, in India or in South America, you have people who are going up a hill on a sharp hairpin turn and a school bus is coming the other way and the school bus almost gets knocked off the cliff, killing a whole bunch of kids um, because of your reckless driving by taking the turn too fast. But since it didn't happen, your takeaway is, okay, that's, that's how you take a turn, right? You don't internalize, holy crap, I might've, you know, that might've been terrible. You say, oh, well, that worked. That's been Trump's behavior for his entire life is um, doing stuff that people told him he shouldn't do or couldn't do, and it worked for him. And as a statistical matter, it'll always work for somebody um, just because of the distribution of results of things, even though it doesn't work for most people. So if he gets reelected after behaving the way he did over the last four years, 
and with basically nobody left who is a grown up um, who can tell him no, right? I mean, all the Mattises, the McMasters, the Kellys, they're all gone. And they've all been replaced by people who are basically yes men and yes women who um, tell him that every one of his decisions are brilliant and that he's done nothing wrong. And the idea that after winning the presidency twice, uh, you could tell him uh, you need to change your behavior is insane to me. And so he will, he will, if he wins, he will be an uglier president. He'll be a nastier president. And he will encourage uglier and nastier behavior from people around him because that's what gets rewarded and that's what he rewards, right? If you say wonderful things about him on TV and you're vicious against um, his enemies, he rewards you for it. If you criticize him, he punishes you for it. And the incentive structure, the way clicks and ratings work is that I think if he wins, America will be uglier and nastier and the Republican Party will become something that is unrecognizable. So I guess you can think about, I think you can guess who I think um, I want to lose in this election, which is sort of where we started. And on that happy note, uh, keep hope alive and cheer up for the worst is yet to come. Uh, and I'll see you next time. Sure.